welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. I'm so excited to bring you today's episode. It's all about Jim Cohen's 2012 film, Museum Hours. What's so special about this episode is that I have a guest on. I talked to Carolyn Pettit. She's managing editor at Feminist Frequency. We had a really amazing, wide-ranging, deep discussion about this film. We talk about all kinds of facets of it. So if you haven't seen Museum Hours, I highly recommend that you watch it. I do want you to know that we talk about certain things in the film and it may be spoiled for you. Museum Hours is this little, perfect, amazing film. It's about two strangers who forge a bond after meeting at a Vienna art museum. It's a beautiful film. It's meditative. Carolyn and I talk about art and human connection and so many other things. I loved talking to her about this film and I loved revisiting this film, re-watching it for this episode. I hope that you'll listen to the full episode and I hope that you will definitely get something out of it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast and the work that I'm doing on a monthly basis and access all kinds of rewards and extras, including bonus episodes and merchandise. You can find out more information Information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Kelsey, Aaron, Rachel, Tyler, Max, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You're wonderful, and I'm so grateful to have your support. But if financial support is not an option for you, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review on iTunes, I will share it on a future episode of the podcast, and I'll leave out your name to protect your privacy. If you love Her Head in Films, consider telling your friends or your followers on social media. Spread the word. Sharing is caring when it comes to podcasts. It can be kind of difficult to get listeners, to get people interested. So please don't underestimate what tweeting about an episode does or sharing it on Facebook or talking about it on Instagram. Those things can help and it can get me more listeners, which is what I ultimately would love because I just want to share my love of cinema with as many people as possible and maybe inspire them. I've gotten some really great messages over the last few months about some of you who you listen to episodes and it inspires you to seek out the films that I talk about and maybe it just inspires inspires your own journey through cinema. And I love that. And I love not being an authority. You know, this is just a starting point. My thoughts are not the be-all, end-all for these films. So I love the idea that some of you actually go out and watch the films and have your own experience because there's no substitution. There's no substitute for watching these films for yourself and, and forming your own opinions and your own relationship with the films. 
So I absolutely love that. And if you want to send me messages or make positive comments or interact with me on social media, I would love that. That's another thing you can do that's totally free because I happen to be a really insecure person (laughs) and it really helps me to hear those things. It just boosts me. It raises my spirits. It reminds me why I'm doing this, why I'm putting so much time and work and effort into her head and films because sometimes I get down and sometimes I feel like a failure and sometimes I struggle. So when I get messages from those of you who listen, that's like a tangible concrete thing that shows me that I'm having some kind of impact in the world. And that's really all I've ever wanted my entire life. All I've ever wanted is just to matter and to create. That's what I've always wanted. And so when you message me, When you do that, you give me that. You let me know that I'm having some kind of effect, some kind of ripple in the world. And that means everything to me. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Her Head in Films and I should pop up. You can see links to all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. I will stop rambling on and let's just dive right into my conversation with Carolyn about museum hours. I hope you like it. I'm excited to share it with you and I'm so glad that we had our conversation. So here it is. Today, I'm joined by Carolyn Pettit. She's managing editor at Feminist Frequency, and she's also the co-host of the weekly podcast, Feminist Frequency Radio. Hello, Carolyn. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Caitlin. Well, it's such a such a pleasure. Uh, you know, I'm a tremendous fan of, of the podcast. And so it's a real uh, it's a real thrill for me to be here with you to talk about a film that I love so much today. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you. When I started thinking about having guests, you were definitely high on my list because you've listened to the podcast a long time. And I always felt like we had a lot in common, you know, when it came to film and the way we approach film and the kinds of cinema that we watch. So I'm really glad that you agreed to be on here. I just want to ask you a few questions before we get into our discussion of museum hours. First, I would just love you to uh, tell more about yourself and sort of introduce yourself to the listeners. Sure. Um, Yeah. So my name is Carolyn Pettit. I sort of came into professional criticism through uh, video games, actually. And I I used to work as an editor for a major kind of video game site called GameSpot. Uh, while during my time at GameSpot, uh, where um, as a as a trans woman in the video game cultural space, I faced uh, a fair amount of uh, pushback, and uh, from there were certain elements of our readership that weren't thrilled to just have to see or listen to a trans woman's opinion on the regular, which which I knew going in would be would be a factor, but I wasn't about to let that stop me. But during my time there, uh, an organization called Feminist Frequency began a project looking at representations of women in video games from a feminist perspective, and it's a video series called Tropes versus Women in Video Games, and um, through a you know set of circumstances that. I won't go into detail for right now, but um, I I eventually wound up working at Feminist Frequency on uh, on those videos because uh, it was a project that I felt was so important, and I definitely saw the need for feminist criticism of video games because because I was aware that sexism and misogyny were such a 
problem, not only um, in the content of video games, but in the culture surrounding video games. But um, film has actually, you know, always been um, a great love of mine, too, and not one that I've uh, really gotten to focus on sort of uh, publicly or professionally. But um, so whenever uh, I have the opportunity to to really uh, discuss film uh certainly you know films that i love i i'm i'm thrilled at the chance so um yeah so again that's uh that's what brings me here today i really love the work that feminist frequency does i've followed it for probably several years now and even before i knew you i definitely knew about feminist frequency and i definitely love the work that you do on there i know that you talk about films sometimes like you know, on Twitter and, you know, different places like that. And of course, in the show notes of this episode, I'll definitely link people to where they can find you outside of our discussion, if they would definitely like to follow you. Great. So um, I'm really glad that you're coming on and that you get to talk about cinema more and talk about film more. And that's really great. I would love to know what are some of your early movie memories, like from your childhood or even beyond and just some of your first memories? Yeah, definitely. So growing up, my father was not like a not a cinephile by by any stretch, but um, there were certain kinds of films that appealed to him, particularly films that involved like technology, you know, science fiction films, and anything that had anything to do with cars. Um, so I was taken with him, uh, I was taken by him to a lot of films when I was very young. Films that I was definitely too young at the time to like emotionally process or handle and that, uh, had images that left these sort of indelible impressions on me. One of them I remember was, uh, this sort of political techno thriller war games it stars you know matthew broderick and um the film has a has an extremely at least for like a six-year-old child has an extremely intense uh, opening scene involving gigantic nuclear missiles uh, almost being fired and there's just the the emotion is is extremely between these two men uh, is extremely heated, and um, you know, weirdly, I, I, I the experience was not what I would call. Um, I'm fumbling for a word here. It's not what I would call traumatic, but it it was it was just overwhelming, like like emotionally and psychologically overwhelming. I was I think I was definitely I think too young to yeah. to like process it, and so the images just again they just they, there was something about the images from that film that that became kind of burned into my mind in, in a in a very powerful way. Another film that I was taken to at a much too young an age uh, was the sort of, it's John Carpenter's adaptation of the Stephen King horror film, Christine, which is about like a killer car. Mm. And um, I, I remember certain jump scares and just moments from that film just sort of terrifying me. And, you know, again, just images becoming extremely just etched into into my mind. But at the same time as as there were these theatrical, these experiences at the at the movie theater where these just larger than life, overwhelming experiences. I also remember at home, my father would just sometimes have on in in the home um, a film like, you know, 2001, uh, which is an extremely sort of visual film. Um, and, you know, that film and 
something like you know or Blade Runner which is also just an extremely like visual film and on the television you know these were a size that I could sort of handle and I, I think that being around films like that that just are so fascinating visually probably instilled in me at a young age in a way that I wasn't even really aware of then a kind of appreciation or a a fascination with the the visual uh, imagery of cinema and what that can do. It's interesting to me how your early experiences with cinema are like, not traumatic necessarily, but very maybe visceral. Yes, that's a good word. Yeah, and the sense that you were consuming images that you couldn't understand at that age. It reminds me of how cinema, about representation and how cinema really shapes us from a very early age, like the power of this art form, for better or worse, that, you know, a lot of people don't always want to talk about the representation of women or minorities or, but when you think about what you're consuming as a child, you know, five, six years old, I myself remember watching films, maybe with sex sexual content in them as a little girl yeah that I maybe was not prepared for sure you know because I had a tv in my room when I was little and my parents couldn't you know this was the 90s my parents couldn't control that I might put it on a channel that had maybe a provocative film on definitely or or a film with violence in it and it and i think about sometimes how those films shaped me really how they shape all of us and in what we think about certain things yeah and i i think you know that there are ways in which ways in which we can think about that critically you know in terms of representation Mm -hmm. And, and then there's also i think another level just that's almost sort of the dreamlike or subconscious sort of mm-hmm. level where, um, you know, again, like these images just of, you know, in my case, like these, you know, the future, the neon lit future Los Angeles of Blade Runner, you know, that maybe became like a, um, it just like it fuel, I think, for like my imagination in some mm-hmm. ways, right? Yeah, like there's also good. that. There's yeah. good and bad. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I also want to say, like, it seems like you really started out with, like, grand films. Like, when I was that age, I was, like, watching The Little Mermaid. <laughs> sure. But that's not, yes. it's so interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I mean, these are not films that I, so those films specifically, like Blade Runner or 2001 and films like that mm. are not films that I was, like, sitting down to watch. It Rather, they were films that, like, images, I, I they might be just on in the background yeah. and mm-hmm. they'd leave this impression on me because that you know certainly like if if i was watching stuff around that time it would have been probably uh, of course like i saw star wars a lot when i was a kid uh, i remember we had hbo at home and you know when i was quite young like uh, star trek 2 was just a movie that was like that they showed on hbo all the time and i think you know at a certain point like kids do i uh, you know if it was on even if i'd seen it like six or seven times I just wanted to watch it again to kind of absorb because there's something comforting when you're a kid about knowing like the the story beats and just the familiarity of seeing something for the umpteenth time so there were there were films I was watching that were kind of within my grasp uh in terms of the the narrative and and everything and then there were 
there were, you know, other films that were more like these kind of abstract experiences that I didn't, that I couldn't wrap my head around, but that nonetheless had some kind of lasting impact on me. Yeah, I I love that you were you were sort of experiencing those films at that age. That's really interesting, and yeah, it's just a reminder of that that like the magic of cinema and just that power it can have over us. These images, how they yes. become just part of our minds, part of our. And I love how you talk about it activated your imagination. I mean, that is a powerful aspect of film. I think I, I really do. Definitely. And I, I just wanted to ask you briefly, like, have you revisited some of those films from your childhood? Yeah, sure. I mean, Blade Runner, when I when I was like um, in my late teens, early 20s, you know, Blade Runner was a film certainly that I that I watched quite a bit. I think Blade Runner for a lot of people is sort of like a part of a, you know, a gateway film to, to sort of thinking about film more more as like an art form or at least at least aesthetically though it does i think have um some fascinating themes too of uh, about humanity and what you know what makes us human and things like that so you know uh, and that that film in particular was a film that, that later you know when i was in high school there was like a director's cut that was released and it, and it was um put in uh, cinemas again and so you know I went to see it in the cinema and that was a, a kind of a big experience for me you know many years later finally getting to sort of see it on the big screen which for a film like that which again is so visually detailed and you know sumptuous there's so much to like take in and appreciate about the kind of just the world that the film creates visually um, that was a, a real pleasure for me later on. Um, I, I actually haven't seen it, but no, I know yeah. that people love, they love the Blade Runner and the new the newer one that was made. And there's been a lot of talk about those films for sure. Sure. So I would love to know what you feel like sparked your passion for cinema or maybe the film or the films that really made you see it more as an art form and yeah. where that passion started. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, so when I was in college, I uh, I studied uh, theater, studied acting. Me and a good friend of mine would sort of rent and watch films that were kind of off the, you know, off the beaten path. Of it. Not the films that so much that um, maybe our peers were uh, really like excited about or into, you know, but films that we were interested in maybe because they uh, had an actor that we really admired or were interested in, in you know, what was an acclaimed performance or something so you know for instance i remember us um at one point like renting the william hurt film the doctor because we both liked william hurt a lot as an actor and kind of watching the film for you know the the, the joy of like seeing his performance in the film and you know that was certainly not a film that like anyone <laughs> at, around us at, at school was would have cared I actually, about actually i've not heard of it yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um and um very obscure. You know, it's it's yeah. I mean, it, it you or know, it was, at least. <laughs> when it came out, when it came out it definitely was uh, you know, it was like a like a well-respected kind of art little, okay. you know, art house film 
Um, but yeah, and so, you know, as we, when, um, you know, the two of us, of course, graduated at a certain point and our lives moved on, but we, we continued to kind of seek out, you know, we, we are just interest in film, you know, our interest in film could need to go beyond just like the, the, the sort of mainstream hits, you know, whatever the kind of big action films or the big like films were. Um, and I think we, we both were uh, voracious readers of film criticism. You know, we loved like just reading reviews and we developed appreciations for certain critics that we really liked. It was around that time that I became pretty enamored with uh, Manola Dargis, who's now a critic for the New York Times. But, you know, when I lived in uh, I lived in Los Angeles at the time for a while, quite a while. She was um, a great critic at publication there called the LA Weekly. And she moved into the, the LA Times. And so, you know, reading her was a very kind of stimulating experience. Um, even when I, when I disagreed with her, you know, her work always gave me um, a lot to think about. So that relationship, the reading of film criticism kind of helped me appreciate film more deeply, you know, and, and so then I'd, I'd go to films and they'd give me things to think about. And then I'd take what I'd seen in films back to my reading of film criticism. And it was just this this really rewarding, you know, and stimulating relationship. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was kind of, I'd say it, it really started to evolve in like the years right after college through going to some of the art houses in L.A., uh, you know, sometimes seeing like foreign, great, like foreign cinema and reading some great film criticism at the same time. Do you have any desire to be a film critic at all or to do more film writing? Um, hmm, I'm not sure, you know, I mean, I, I, I have tremendous admiration for, for, you know, great film criticism and great film appreciation. Certainly, I, I, it's something that I, that I've thought about at times, but I haven't really, I haven't explored it enough to know if I feel like I really have something to say in that space that I can do work that I would feel proud of, or that I would feel was valuable in that space. So it's, it's not something that I, it's not something that I've really given, uh, really pursued yet or off course or given given too much thought to i was just curious because i do enjoy your writing you know when you write about films like on your tumblr and yeah uh things like that like when you've wrote when you've written about call me by your name for instance sure. or you wrote about desert hearts and i incorporated that into my own review my own episode that's about right. the film and so that's just why i ask because i just i do yeah. enjoy your writing on film Thank you very much. And of course, yes, there, of course, occasionally there are films that, that just live inside of me so intensely that I feel like, oh my God, I, you know, I have to say something about this film. And, and when that happens, of course, I, I love to write about, about film, but um, whether it's something that I would want to do more consistently, um, I don't, yeah, I don't really know yet. Okay. <laughs> what are some of your favorite films? I would love to know. You know, this is, it's, of course, it's one of those questions that I think, um, you know, you could ask me one day and I'll come up with, you know, say five <laughs> movies and you might ask me the next day and I'll be in a different emotional space, a different mental space, and I might have five other films uh, for you. So, you know, I would say uh, <laughs> certainly, you know, um, Casablanca is, uh, is just... Uh, for my money, you know, Casablanca might be the most sort of purely entertaining kind of Hollywood film of all time. Just sort of, you know, if we're talking like sort of mainstream, like studio stuff, I mean, it's for me, it doesn't get any better than 
really than Casablanca. I, I adore that film. Yeah, um, you know, I was thinking um, earlier today about Blue is the Warmest Color, which is a film that, um, of course, you know, of course has its, uh, what we might, what we call, you know, extremely like problematic elements. And we can't sort of ignore that or pretend that they're not there. And yet I find that the emotion, the performances in that film, the emotion of the story, the way that um, it observes its characters in just moments of, of life is so, so powerful to me. It's, it's a film that it's, I come at the end, I'm just left speechless by the, you know, the two lead performances and by the, uh, just how much I feel like I've been on this emotional transformative journey with um, the main character of Adele. But then, you know, on the, the uh, sort of like the other side of that coin, there's a film, is a Swedish film called Kiss Me. The Swedish spelling is, and I don't, is K-Y-S-S, uh, me, M-I-G. But it was, it's been released in English, both under the name Kiss Me uh, and under the name um, With Every Heartbeat. So depending on, uh, it's, you know, <laughs> it makes it a little tricky, I guess, to like Google it. But but you can find it. And this this is another queer romance. It's a film about a love that develops between two women. And it's actually far, far more conventional than uh, something like Blue is the Warmest Color. It feels kind of mainstream. It has a kind of traditional three-act structure and everything. And uh, for me, that's actually part of its power is that it tells a, you know, a queer love story a story of love between two women, which traditionally is not the kind of story that, um, you know, mainstream films have told, although that's seemingly perhaps starting to change. But and it does it in in such by, by doing it in such a kind of mainstream or conventional way, it really seems to kind of, you know, to some degree normalize the story that it's telling. And also it has these um, if there's a big there's a big problem to me with blue is the warmest colors love scenes and that they feel so staged for the viewer. It is not um, a stretch for some viewers to criticize them as being sort of pornographic in in their presentation. You know, and, and by contrast, the, the love scenes in Kiss Me are so much about um, faces and hands and emotion, you know, like walls collapsing or things like that. And as a result, they're far more to me powerful and kind of, um, you know, sexy even than than what we get in, in Blue is the Warmest Color. And so that's a film I've uh, that's sort of like a, in a way, it's a comfort film. You know, it's a film that I might just put on in the background if I'm doing other things at this point. But it, that's not to diminish it at all. Kiss Me is a film that I truly, truly, that has a very kind of special place in my heart. I actually have not heard of that film, so I will definitely look into it and, you know, try to find it and get more information about it. And I did an episode about Blue is the Warmest Color, and I definitely am on the same page with you about that film. Like, the thing is, is that I felt like the online criticism of the film almost affected the way that I reacted to it. I felt felt like I should reject it. I felt like, oh, I shouldn't. It feels like that film, like, you shouldn't admit that you love... But when you open yourself up to that film for all its issues, and I agree about the sex, but I think it's also very unfair to reduce that film just to the sex. I, I agree. Yeah, completely. and I, oh, I know you do. Yeah. yeah. There is something deeply emotional about the film. There are textures. There's a sensuality. There's what Adele... Um, 
the main actress does and what Leia Say Do does as well. Like, but especially Adele's performance. Just I, I haven't uh, seen anything like it. The, no. the way she carries that film and the way she conveys certain emotions, they resonated with me, not just in terms of that, but like the class. There's she's she's working class and that was something i could really relate to and there's there's just so many layers to that film and so i i every time you watch that film you feel like you have an experience yes 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 and i love casablanca to casablanca too that was a film i i saw very early on when i was getting interested in cinema and art house and i just oh god i think it made me fall in love with ingrid bergman forever you know i just love ingrid bergman i me too me deeply (laughs) oh absolutely oh my gosh her on screen like her skin her beauty but also Uh. like her acting and just Yes. Everything about that woman. I love Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> so, but I will definitely check out Kiss Me and and try to learn more about that film. It sounds really good. It does. So finally, I just want to ask you if recently you have seen any films that you just really love and that you want to talk about or mention. Sure. I think that this year has been particularly vital and important for Black filmmakers and films that kind of focus on, on Black experiences. The film um sorry to bother you by boots riley is uh, a tremendously surreal and strange film but it's also in my mind exactly the kind of film we need politically right now in terms of its its concerns with labor its concerns with just <laughs> with labor with 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 racism, with those kinds of cultural issues. Uh, Alongside that, there's uh, uh, Black Klansman by Spike Lee, which is a film that I I agree very strongly with. Uh, So Boots Riley, the director of Sorry to Bother You, criticized Black Klansman quite um, strongly for, you know, in a lot of ways, um, for not being critical it's it's obvious it's a film about white supremacy and it's a film about specifically the KKK and David Duke and but it's um ultimately it's not inherently critical of police institutions and you know so I, I, I agree very much with, with Boots Riley who criticized the film for kind of letting police institutions off the hook or for even maybe kind of glorifying them to some degree. And yet the way that Black Klansman makes its connections between what uh, was happening in the film's sort of like early 70s era about, you know, this black police officer in Colorado Springs who infiltrates the the KKK and, um, and, and you know, what's happening in the country right now today with regard to white supremacy becoming more overt, more emboldened in its existence. Certainly it's always been there. It's never gone away. Uh, it's at the core of this country's history and um but yeah i mean i i walked out of black Klansmen kind of shattered by the impact of it in a lot of ways so yeah you know i i guess i guess those are the films that you know that i've seen sort of this year that i feel like it's important to to mention given the given the historical moment you know that we that we find ourselves in 
Yeah, more films that I need to see. There's just so much out there. There's so much to see. But yeah, those sound very relevant and of the moment. And um, we need we need more films like that. Those are very important. Now we can talk about museum hours. <laughs> I just want to talk a moment about revisiting the film because it's probably been a few years since both of us originally saw it. It came out in 2012. And I just wanted to, I guess, share, we can share our memories like the first time we saw it and then what it was like to rewatch it. I do remember that I saw it in 2013 and I don't totally remember the context of watching it but it just it interested me. I'm attracted to films about art, about museums. I myself love art and um, I actually haven't really been to a museum before which is crazy but I live in sort of a rural area and there's just not a lot of stuff like that around where I live Um, but I'm fascinated by art and by museums and I think that's probably what intrigued me about it and got me interested in it and then when I saw it I just was blown away by this little quiet film that not a lot of people talk about and I'm just curious about you know your first time seeing it as well sure um I I remember when it was initially released and I didn't see it in, in the theaters but I remembered reading a review of it that was you know very glowing that said that this film was really something special and I think you know at a certain point not too long after its release it 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 uh, showed up on Netflix, and you know the Netflix algorithm. I think just knows that I'm uh, interested in that sort of thing. So the film kind of popped up in my in in Netflix's like recommendations for me, and um, I actually saw it at a. I was I was sort of dog sitting at a, a friend's place. This couple that I'm friends with were out, you know, they were out of town, and their home is you know quite. It's not like a. It's not a. a, a a large home, but it's it's certainly uh, a lot more spacious than you know my my apartment, and and it's also you know a bit sort of unfamiliar to me. And so there's a it was nighttime, you know it it was dark. I had all the lights off, and I was watching this film, and and you know the film itself is so is so quiet, right? Because it, it's it's so much of it takes place in a museum, and it's such a it's such a film about just looking and observing and and the feeling that i remember from that first viewing is of being in a space you know where the house was so quiet as i was in it too and quiet in a way that my apartment is never really quiet because they you know they live in a in a in a quiet sort of very quiet like residential area it's a bit kind of remote and things and so it it almost felt to me as if the quiet of the museum, the particular, there's a particular kind of quiet that you can experience in a museum, this kind of, not oppressive at all, uh, but just a kind of heavy quiet, you know, as you're, as people are like observing the paintings or just regarding the art and everything. And it was as if almost that uh, quiet kind of extended out from the film and into the, into the space around me. It was um, quite, you know, it was quite, it was gently powerful in that way, I would say. Wow, that's really beautiful, you know, to think about how you're in, how the film sort of in, affected your environment or reflected it in some way. And then we rewatching it this year in 2018, you know, five years later, I found that for me, it really held up that it was 
it was like the first time almost really yeah because i don't have a great memory so when five years go by i'm really not going to remember a whole lot about a film although certain things had stayed with me certain images and i i just i love nowadays especially just watching films about just ordinary people how they can connect i love films that are really infused with the rhythms of everyday life and i also happen to revisit this film at a time when I'm struggling with depression right now and I just found that the film at this particular moment in my life comforted me and that my mind like when I'm depressed or I I just in general I struggle to concentrate like it's just something I struggle with I guess it's connected to the modern world to the internet to social media sort of the fragmentation of our lives nowadays and how we're always on we're always on devices we're always on machines and of course I had to use my laptop to watch the film sure so I mean I'm not against those things obviously um you know my computer allows me to watch great films but it's like it was so nice to just watch this film and let the the stillness of it the quiet of it just sort of envelop me and sort of hold me and comfort me at a time when I needed it the visual beauty of the film was just such a comfort to me and I think also in this day and age (laughs) you know the times we're living in it's like we need that reminder of human decency of human kindness of human connection and when you're in depression when you're in the depths you can tend to forget that and so This was a film for me that reminded me of that. So I felt like this film sort of came along at the right time for me. That doesn't always happen. But in but in this time in my life, it just kind of came along at a good time. I mean, what about you with revisiting it and rewatching it this year? Yeah, absolutely. This is a film that, you know, both times that I've watched it, uh, I, I it leaves me in a different headspace. It leaves me in a different emotional and mental space watching it because it's so gentle. It's so slow. It's so, and I mean that not as not as a, a criticism, but as a as praise. Like this film is wonderful in its slowness. And yes, like uh, it, it very much is a film that encourages you to notice the details of life around you and to kind of observe and to appreciate. And, you know, so like as I was walking up the street this morning to uh, this little coffee stand where I go to get a cup of coffee um, on a lot of mornings, you know, I'm just I, I noticed I was like more inclined to, you know, to, to appreciate little just details of um the environment you know that little you know flowers or just to and to kind of take it slow myself to kind of just enjoy the the walk you know the leisure the leisureliness of the walk and to really take my time and um and yes like i I think that that is uh so valuable as you say right now um given the ways in which we are uh, certainly, I know that I am definitely, you know, overstimulated by the internet, by Twitter, yeah, by things like this. I have a kind of, like a lot of people, I think I have a kind of addiction to these things to some degree. And that's not to say that they don't offer, you know, good things in my life, that the connections that Twitter, you know, offers are not um, sometimes valuable, right? That They are. They definitely are. I think that sometimes Twitter can make me feel more connected and less lonely, but there is also... A way in which this constant speed and stimulation and updating of things online can 
sort of rewire our brains in ways that are not conducive to us being in the moment, to being present, to being happy even, or fulfilled, or just just comfortable in the moment. And so um, I was particularly aware of that, of those aspects of Museum Hours, um, I think after revisiting the film this week. Yeah, it was the same for me. I mean, just today I was standing outside. I was just watching like the the grass swaying in the wind. I was watching the trees and I was like trying to be in the moment, in the present and appreciate that and just live inside of that. And I was moved by the beauty of it because nature is something that I just really love and is a big comfort to me. And it's just, it's important to reconnect with those things, I think. And I, I do think films like this can do that. And I've gotten much more interested in something called slow cinema it's a real thing it's Mm -hmm. there's a really great blog called the art of slow cinema and i'll put a link to it in the uh, show notes of the episode it's just this great blog that talks about films that are slower and it's it's a real thing it's like a movement and not just slow cinema cinema (laughs) i can't (laughs) talk not just slow cinema but um, I shared an article, I think, on The Guardian recently about slow reading. Yes. About people I, I, trying to, like, slow down and read. And, like, yes. and that interests me. It's like there's this whole movement of, like, slowness that more people are getting interested in. And, and it can be helpful and it can slow you down and just, you know, uh, put you back into the moment, back into yes. the present. And so it's something, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm great at it. I'm not saying that I watch slow films all the time. <laughs> You know, or I'm doing all of that 100% of the time. I'm on social media too much. But I think if we could be more aware of it and try to incorporate that into our lives, like you don't have to watch a film like Museum Hours every single day or all the time. Of course. But it might be, it might be a good idea to try to watch something like this every now and then, or when you feel like you're in the space to appreciate it. I agree. I agree completely. Yes. Yeah, so I'm really glad that it just happened. I mean, we had planned to talk about this film. We didn't know exactly the way it would hit us, you know, when the week came for us to talk about it. But it seems like it just kind of, it just, it helped us in some way. Yes, it it was definitely a rejuvenating, you know, there's something rejuvenating to me about this film. Uh, There was, you know, this at this particular time, given the way that it observes connection and, and, and sort of celebrates human connection. It was, you know, also was particularly, I think, valuable, you know, for me right now. Definitely. And so let's talk about the film yeah Um, i just want to briefly give people an idea you know i mean we're going to be talking about the film i would obviously recommend people watch it before listening to the to the discussion i don't know what will divulge you know in the course of it but um it's set i don't know if i'm gonna pronounce this right i know but it's (laughs) (laughs) i went online and i tried um it's pronounced i think kunst hysterosis (laughs) don't know it's so hard but it's kunz Hysterosha's art museum in vienna austria that is the setting and there's not a lot of characters in this film it's a man named johan he works at the museum as a guard and there's a woman named Anne. she's from montreal her cousin janet lives in vienna austria and is in the hospital she's basically in a coma and so Anne goes over to vienna to be with her cousin they actually haven't talked in a long time but uh ann is really the only family that the doctors were able to find and so Anne goes over there and she's alone she's in a city she's never been to where 
she doesn't know the language and um, she just happens to go into this art museum where Johan works and the two of them connect with each other and Johan really becomes a great comfort to her and a help to her and shows great kindness to her and the two of them hit it off they have this connection and that's really there's not a lot of plot you know yeah. uh, it, that's kind of the gist of it as it's really about Anne ha- trying to deal with what's happening to Janet in the hospital and it's about Anne and Johan opening up to each other it's really about a friendship you know yeah. and about two strangers connecting and so that's pretty much the gist of it it sort of reminded me a bit like I know you've tweeted a bit about like the before trilogy like before sunset i have not seen those films myself although i know about them but i would think that that's a little bit similar about you know two strangers meeting and talking and getting to know each other and i was sort of reminded of that a little bit yeah there is definitely that that connection but uh i'd say the thing that sort of sets the would set those apart is um you know in, in the before films the the two main characters are they're very like they're sort of hyper articulate and they're always mm. talking and they have all these like yeah. lofty very lofty conversations <laughs> about things and you know johan and Anne are they are you know it's often they they're not even really talking about you know they don't really have many conversations about like big issues this is not a film we come to for like the the stimulation of of um like listening to to lots of like very intellectual conversing they their conversations are wonderfully kind of you know i mean ordinary sounds like it's again like i think this is a a problem not a problem but uh something i think about with regard to this film is that you know the whole in in some ways the whole point of the film is its focus on the lives of uh, for lack of a better term right now you know ordinary people and how you know there's an artist whose work is featured at the museum and who is discussed sort of a, a few times throughout the film Bruegel, who whose whose art often focused on you know peasants of his time or ordinary people uh, you know just their 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 lives you know as if to say like their lives have meaning too their lives matter their lives are worth uh, depicting and and celebrating and acknowledging and i feel like the film itself by focusing on you know johan and Anne is and and by making them seem very just real you know and very kind of you know again ordinary the film is is extending that to them and then by extension to all of us who feel like we are on this planet right now living fairly you know ordinary lives saying like well our lives are also meaningful and valuable and and also the life happening around us is worth uh, observing and appreciating and finding beauty and significance in yeah, absolutely. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. It made me think about how recently I've been getting more into poetry. I've been reading more poetry. And I find that the poets that I love the most are the poets that talk about everyday experiences like Mary Oliver or Donald Hall or Jane Kenyon. Uh, those are the poets that I've been reading more of recently. And I've just, I've found them to be very comforting to me. They may just talk about a tree or taking a walk yes. in the woods or 
or Jane Kenyon had cancer and she would write about that. Donald Hall was her husband and he wrote about losing her. Yeah. He wrote, you know, they talk about life and death and ordinary everyday things. And it's not fancy poetry. It's not really abstract or really intellectual, but it's just about everyday things. And I find that I like films like that as well. Yeah, I think it's it's also worth noting, you know, that Museum Hours, while Johan and Anne are, of course, the the, the focus, they are the, the they make up essentially the only plot this film has to speak of. This film spends a great deal of time, a great deal of time lingering in shots that don't advance the story at all, that don't even have Johan or Anne in them. Shots of other people at the museum regarding the art, shots of the art itself. Often it will focus on, on little details in a painting, you know, to sort of say, Oh, look, notice, notice this, you know, um, and also shots of Vienna itself, the city, of course, where the film takes place and not in any way. Uh, I mean, Vienna is certainly a, a, a beautiful uh, city, breathtaking in, in some ways. And the film, it doesn't uh, hide that fact. I mean, there's, you know, there's a, a time when we see Johan and Anne near these just majestic cathedrals, just these m- towering, majestic, you know, awe-inspiring cathedrals. But also we see shots of, like, uh, cigarette butts in a puddle in the rain, you know, the, the sort of, the like, detritus of life. It's, it, it's Vienna as a very lived-in city, you know, a messy city, a, a city that's you know, and uh, yeah, it's it's not trying to idealize or sanitize anything. It wants to show life in all of its kind of messy, you know, ordinary splendor. And I felt like the film sort of blurred reality and fiction for me because I yeah. felt like, um, you know, of course, Anne and Johan are played by actors. Bobby Summer plays Johan. Mary Margaret O'Hara plays Anne. And they're obviously actors. But I felt like some of those shots, like at the market outside when the people were going through the stuff, that yes. seemed real to me. That seemed like, uh, you know, Jim Cohen just came upon it. And at times I couldn't tell what was scripted and what wasn't. It felt to me like when he was in the museum, Museum, showing people those to me came off like real patrons at the museum it didn't feel to me like oh he went and hired actors like right. um so i really felt like he was he was mixing things like you would just see birds or you would see things on the streets yeah. that didn't seem like he planned that that seemed like maybe he came across it with his camera and he took some footage of it there's a documentary aspect to it for me personally and then there's this fiction this scripted things this thing of Anne and Johan so that fascinated me the hybrid of the film in that way absolutely and and I think that you know as I'm thinking about that right now sitting here talking to you I feel like that in a way goes back again to the art that the film that the sort of classical art the paintings and and such the film itself most focuses and on and celebrates this artist uh, Bruegel again. Uh, so the museum has, I guess, the, the, the greatest collection of Bruegel's work in the world. And, you know, there's a, a scene where there's like a guest lecturer at the museum and she talks about how, so, you know, he, a lot of his paintings are often these kind of, as I said earlier, I think these vast 
crowd scenes. Just these extremely, just so many details to notice, you know, and little little corners of things. Just mm-hmm. so many, so many interactions and moments and things just happening. And, and at one, you know, the, the the lecturer herself, she says that um, she uses the word documentary at some point when talking about Bruegel's work. I forget exactly the phrase or the context in which she uses it, but it's something to say like. The accuracy, the way that she, the way that Bruegel uh, was attentive to the the details the, uh, of peasant life and was very exacting about capturing those, while also, of course, bringing necessary out of necessity, bringing some fiction to the work to to create a visual, you know, um, narrative to create a through line for the yeah. image to mm-hmm. you know to to um, craft something. He but. But he took reality, you know, and then crafted it into these moments to present to us through through his paintings. And I think the film similarly, you know, in a way you could you could argue does that, too. Yeah, I remember she even said that he went undercover as a peasant. Yeah, remember? <laughs> yeah, just, just to make sure that he was getting the details right in the paintings. But at the same time, it's composed, it's structured, and, exactly. But so he, yeah, you're right. He's mingling the the real and the fictional. He's putting the Bible stories in there, right? But then he's also just showing everyday peasant people. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I think Cohen's doing, I think there's different layers to this film. Absolutely. Like there's, there's so many things going on in it. Yeah, you know, another thing that that I was thinking about as I was watching the film this time is, is I also think the film is, is trying to some degree to deliberately connect, um, you know, our lives, our lived experiences right now as the as human beings who are alive on this planet in this moment, you know, to the lives of the people who who have come before in mm, decades yeah. and centuries past. So, and and one moment where this really came through for me is um, uh, at one point, Johan is sort of telling us the viewer about his younger days being like a, um, a man, or maybe he's telling Anne. I don't remember if this is voiceover to us directly or if it's when he's talking to Anne because there's a good deal of both in the film. But it's a, a, at a point at which Johan is, is talking specifically about driving a van for like a small time rock bands in his younger days when he was sort of fumbling his way through being like a, like a band manager and stuff. And he talks about going to, you know, all these like little pubs to, to sort of intimately knowing all these like smoke filled holes as he puts it in, you know, in this city and this city and this city. And as he's talking about that, some of what that we're seeing on screen are paintings of like, um, you know, what looked to be like peasant revelers from centuries past people dancing, celebrating. Um, clearly there's, you know, music happening in the moments that the, that the painting, that the paintings capture. And it just seemed like, oh, you know, Cohen, the filmmaker is being very deliberate here with his choice of like the, what paintings and images he's showing us as Johan is talking about this to, to really show that the kind of the things that I guess connect us, the things that make our experiences on this planet uh, or can make our experiences on this planet today in some ways still similar to experiences of those who have come before. 
Absolutely. When you were talking about that, it reminded me of a scene that really, I don't know, it got to me. I don't know if you noticed it. It was sort of subtle, but throughout the film, we don't see Janet uh, until she is revealed to us in a very particular way by Cohen. He shows these close-ups of different faces at the museum. I want to say it might have been women's faces. And so each painting, we're seeing like different faces. And then all of a sudden, we see Janet's face for the first time when she's lying in the coma in the bed. And to me, that was a way of connecting her, I guess, to history of saying, look at the faces of the people in these paintings. They are dead. They are gone. And yet here are their, that's the power to me of art, of paintings in particular, is that here are people from centuries ago. We don't have photographs of them. We don't have films of them because those art forms are very recent. But we have paintings, you know, from the 1600s and beyond and all that. And we have these people's faces. And yet, obviously, the people represented in these paintings are are gone. They're dead. But we have their images with us. We can stand there and look at them. And there's a very powerful connection that you feel to history and to the people that came before. And it's just shocking. I mean, I still think about like, oh my God, there were people who lived hundreds of years ago. Like, I know. I still can't <laughs> comprehend it. There, and I, I, It still feels like a revelation to me as well. Yes. That, that processing of, oh, you know, not just that there were people who, who lived in times past, but oh, to the people living then, you know, the people who were alive in, in you know, let's say the 1600s, their lives were as immediate and vibrant, mm, you know, yeah. to them, right, Absolutely. as our lives are to us right now, right? I think we, yeah. it's easy for us um, <laughs> to, to, I think, to not really understand that, that, oh, there was passion and there was anger and there was love and there was food and wine and uh, you know i mean the the whole pageant of human life with all of its joy and all of its grief and all Mm. of its struggle and turmoil is something that uh i mean it it sounds mundane uh, to to say it out loud to me and yet and yet some there's something about when a when a work of art really makes me feel that connection Mm -hmm. as museum hours does it still somehow feels like a like a revelation, even though, of course, I'm intellectually aware of it all the time. There's something about that. Uh, and, and I think it goes back again to or, you know, at, at one point, I think, you know, Johan in the film says, uh, I think it's probably at the very end. But uh, in one of his voiceovers, he says, one is reminded of the transience of things. And I think it's it's that, too. It's the the realization, oh, that of course, well, we will at some point be gone. And, yeah. you know, and, and exactly. this, as long as we don't, um, you know, God willing, um, make the planet uninhabitable or destroy our own species with nuclear weapons or something, mm-hmm. then, you know, I mean, one hopes that in centuries and millennia to come, there will be people who continue to live their own meaningful lives that in some ways will be unrecognizable to us, but in others will will have things that do connect, you know, our lives and our time to, to theirs. 
Yeah, I mean, these people in these paintings, these two-dimensional paintings, were once flesh and blood. They were once as real as we are. Yes. And, um, and I think that if you can have an understanding and an appreciation for the past and for history, I think it impacts the way you see the future, too, of wanting to preserve things, for it to, to yes. even have a vision of the future to say, there's going to be people here beyond me. Right. And what what do my actions now? How do they affect those people to come? Ugh. And um, I think about Walt Whitman. Like he had poems sometimes where he would address people in the future. It's fascinating. Like I saw this documentary about him. I think it was PBS American Masters or something. And they quoted him some of that, like where he was talking to people in the future. He was talking to the people that were to come and he was thinking about them. And he was someone who was very conscious of that and someone who thought about these things. And I just feel like if you can understand and appreciate the past, it it gives you a sense of the future. And I loved how at the end of this film, Jim Cohen, I don't know if you watched it this far, but he said he thanked his parents or dedicated the film to his parents because they took him to museums. It it can shape you. Yeah, he yes. he dedicates the film to his parents and to Vic Chestnut. And I think oh. Vic Chestnut was a singer. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yes. He dedicated the film to them. And I think if you can take kids to museums, I know at the time they probably don't fully get it. You know, kids get bored and yeah, but it could have an impact that they don't quite understand until they're older. Maybe. Oh, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it affects people. And I'd really love to talk more about the power and the importance of looking in the film. I think it's a good transition into that. Like, Sure. that's what you do at a museum. Like you're looking, you're, you're regarding things, you're paying attention. And I just wanted to like mention this series. I don't know if a lot of people have seen it, but this was a really profound series in my life that made me see art like in a deeper way and made me understand it more. And that's uh, Simon Shama's series called The Power of Art. And it was shown on PBS years and years ago. It might be on YouTube. But there's like seven or eight episodes. And each episode is about a different artwork by a different artist. So he talked about a work by Picasso, Caravaggio, Bernini, Van Gogh, different artists like that. And he dug really deeply into the time in which these artists lived, why they created the, the particular work of art. And it's just a really amazing series. And um, it just made me see art in a different way. And I just wanted to mention it because as I was rewatching the film, I thought of that. And I thought about how art invites us to pay attention. It invites us to look. And I really felt like that's what this film obviously does. As we're looking at this film for the second time, we're seeing new things in it so you could even argue that film is similar to paintings in that way that that films certain films invite us to also look at things like this is a film about art and so it's like I don't know there's different layers to it where you're looking at the film and the film itself is looking at paintings and looking at looking I know that it sounds weird when I'm saying it but it made sense in my head <laughs> absolutely um, you know yeah. and, um, you know I love that uh, I love that Johan has little sort of games almost that he plays to kind of keep the games that he plays with the art to kind of maybe make his day pass a little faster. But, you know, for instance, there's uh, one point where uh, he talks about um, noticing an egg in one painting and then on his rounds, maybe looking for eggs in other 
paintings, you know, things like that. So that he's been at the museum now for six years, and yet uh, he still finds ways to to sort of, I mean, he still finds new things in the paintings all the time. But, you know, there's also ways in which he looks at the people who look at the, the paintings. There's a, yeah. a, a, a stretch in which he talks about children who, you know, come to the museum, like on field trips and things, and the various kind of reactions that they can have, how they might just seem kind of bored, or, you know, the works of art that do seem to kind of interest them, maybe the gory kind of what, you know, paintings or the, uh, the, 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 the really like sexualized uh, paintings, things like that. But so it's, it's that interesting relationship of, you know, the kids are looking at the art and, and um, Johan is looking at the kids, looking at the art and, and how there are things to appreciate, you know, in the art itself but also in the experience of looking at the people who are looking at the art, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm, absolutely. I love the way you said that. And um, I think we also touched on this idea when we were noticing certain themes of how Johan see not he doesn't just notice the art, you know, but he starts to see Vienna through the eyes of Anne as he's uh, guiding her because he really becomes her guide. You know, he takes her around to different places and he gets to show Vienna to her. And through the process of doing that, he starts to see it through her eyes. And he starts to to rediscover it and see it anew. And I saw, I sort of thought about how um, by talking about this film, we're kind of seeing the film through one another's eyes as well. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I, re- I loved that about the film too. You know, um, I, uh, because I, I guess I feel that in my own life, the way that, you know, what Johan talks about, how, um, how the city is in some ways brought back to life for him through the experience of sharing it with Anne and showing it to Anne. When I visit, you know, a new, a city that I'm not so familiar with, you know, so if I, when I visit, say, New York, which is not, city I've visited um, a number of times, but I've never lived there or anything. And it just feels so stimulating. Everything is different. It's unfamiliar to me. And as a result, it all, there's something, you know, almost wondrous about all of it. It all feels like discovery. It all feels new and fresh and exciting. And, um, you know, and there, and I know that, you know, the city I live in, San Francisco, uh, or the Bay Area, I live in in Berkeley, in the East Bay, but I'm, you know, I'm in San Francisco all the time. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's a beautiful city. It's a wonder, you know, it's a city of wonders. It has astounding things. And yet there's a way in which it's become sort of familiar to me because I've lived here now for, uh, you know, 12 plus years. And so I don't have that same sense of, of taking a thrill in, in it, that I once would have and that I do when I go to other cities. And yet I think that if, if I had that experience that Johan is having, you know, of, of offering up the city to a friend or to somebody who visiting, you know, that it would, it might in some ways kind of help me see the city fresh again, like, you know, kind of see it again for the first time or something like that. I really love how the film looks at the world inside the museum, and then it's also training its lens to the world outside the museum. That it's really mixing those two worlds of 
you know, what's inside of it and then what's beyond it and how those two things mingle with each other. And I I just really love that. And I loved earlier how you talked about how it shows Vienna in a complex way, you know, not all the beautiful stuff and the beautiful buildings and architecture, but the more everyday part of Vienna, (laughs) the more ordinary part where people just go about their lives and, and take the train and, you know, here's the different shops and, he yeah and he tells her different stories about different shops and different places and he takes her to these little bars with just working class everyday people in them exactly you know that they they just sit in these you know ordinary bars and have quiet conversations about you know Anne might you know i mean johan is certainly showing Anne around quite a bit but Anne is also on her own a fair amount of the time and so she'll you know it's so in those moments with Johan, she can, you know, we often see and hear her telling Johan about something she saw out in, in uh, Vienna that day, you know, and uh, her own sense of discovery, you know, and how we want, you know, we want to share. There's a way in which the moments in our lives that are just our own can often be made more meaningful or more real if and when through the act of like telling another person about them. Right. And mm. at least that's what that's part of what I get out of and talking to Johan, you know, those moments where she says, oh, you know, I saw these I saw these uh, massive structures today. You know what? Mm. You know, what were those? And to kind of share what was originally like a private an experience that one had she had alone to share it with somebody who she's formed this connection with, I think, um, can can breathe new life and new meaning into it in a, in a way. Yeah, I mean, I love the intimacy and connection between them. It's, it happens very organically, and it's represented very organically, where she's just at the museum one day, he happens to notice her, and I think that she um, she asks him for directions to the hospital, right. where Janet's st- staying, and and that just that one little conversation opens up something for them where he says you know i'll call the doctor for you if you because they're obviously talking in a language she doesn't know yeah. and um and he offers to do that now i thought it was interesting how later on he said really he offered that just to make sure her story was true yeah, yeah. <laughs> like even he like you know he lives in a big city he has to be careful himself and he's yeah. open about that that he doesn't know this woman she could be lying, but she's not. And and once he checks that out and he realizes, you know, she's telling the truth. She's there to see her cousin. They they start to just organically open up to each other. And um, yeah. I just, when I was watching it, it, the mystery of that, the mystery of why we're drawn to certain people and how certain people can come into our lives and we don't totally understand why we feel that connection with them. Or like, you know, you've been around people, different people all the time and you just can feel when you can be yourself with someone or you can talk yes. about things and then you can feel with other people like, oh, I, I can't be myself i can't joke i can't say these things and it's something intangible that you can't quite explain absolutely and that's you know certainly that's one of the big i mean that's something i spend a a fair amount of time thinking about so i I yes i i i love the film for its kind of exploration of that you know i think that you know johan you know and and I don't know, my late 40s, you know, early 50s, I'm not sure, Johan, maybe somewhat older. You know, it's rare and it's hard to make new connections, to find new connections, to find new friends as 
an adult, uh, you know, the older you, it's true, you know, people say it a lot, I think, and I think it's true that often, you know, the older you get, the harder it is to kind of form those connections. And I, I find that I'm, to myself, I come across as somebody who's very particular about other people and who, who with whom there's only like a, a fairly small subset of people with whom I actually feel comfortable and feel like, oh, I can really connect with this person. I really feel like I can be free with this person. Whereas, you know, the majority of people you know, just something about them. You know, they may be great people. It's not a, it's not a judgment. It's not a, anything about, like, they're, they're a person being a good person or not a good person. But that sense of, oh, yes, I just can't. Um, I'm just going to be guarded around this person. Like, I can't fully let my guard down. And, yeah, you know, at one point in the film uh, early on, you know, Johan is sort of, he's got a beer. He's at a, 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 a bar just sitting there by himself. We hear in, in voiceover his sort of musing of... Um, yeah, what is it about some people that makes one that makes one curious when with others one would be just as happy to to never know anything about them? And that's such it's a there's no you know, there's no easy answer to that question, but it's such a it's a question that has such a, a, a big impact on our lives, you know? It's something that I, I almost never in one way or another stop thinking about. And I think for you know, at least for me it it, it has something to do with with people coming across to me as sincere, as genuine, as, you know, um, in a way that I can understand. So I feel like Anne and Johan are both kind of, um, they're both very kind of low-key, sincere, like earnest people. And I think that that probably in some way helps them recognize that in each other, uh, the sincerity in each other, and to connect. But I, 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 I was fascinated this time by the way that it seemed to me that during their first meeting, their first conversation, you know, Anne's face is a little more like closed off. You know, she hasn't yet like uh, learned to kind of trust. Uh, neither of them are fully trusting each other yet. As you said, Johan wants to kind of make sure that her, she's telling the truth. And, and I also felt that Anne's face is kind of closed off. Like she's not fully ready yet to, to let this person in. But, um, you know, later on in the film, I, I, I find that her face really really comes alive in the film as she's uh, talking to, as she's talking to Johan. Yeah, I agree. Um, definitely. She does. She does come more alive. And I guess it's understandable. Like she is a woman on her own in a yeah. city where she doesn't know anybody. She's going to be a bit guarded and he's going to be guarded. And But it's actually interesting how quickly they do connect with each other. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty quick. I mean, before you know it, he's accompanying her to the hospital. Yes. And he's sitting there by Janet's bed talking about the art in the museum. You know, she wants him to talk a little bit like, she Anne comes off to me she comes off strong to me she doesn't come off like she's fragile or anything like that necessarily but she comes off like she's just unsure of what to do it's hard for her to see Janet that way even though they haven't seen each other in years I, I was also sort of moved by Janet's own loneliness that they had nobody else that yes. nobody else is there there's no friends. There's no other family. Yeah. That Anne is really the only, and they just found Anne's name in an address book that Janet right. had. Right. It's like nobody else is there, and Janet's just laying there in the bed, and it's it's hard, like it's painful in a way. And um, 
I liked that the film didn't like make that into a spectacle or anything. Like yeah. it's very respectful in the way that it shows Janet. Like like I said earlier about they just show her face and um and then sometimes you'll see her hand and but I felt like when Anne invited Johan to go with her, I felt like that was a really big thing. Like to say, will you come sit with me in the hospital? And he actually does that. I mean, some of us don't even have family who would do that. You know, I don't, I'm not very right. close to my family personally. You know, I, I couldn't even depend on them to do that with me. So that's a big deal to ask like a stranger to do that and his willingness to do that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that, you know, I think that Johan understands as the film understands that that how how important connection is. And, you know, it's interesting. Johan starts to sort of reflect through his experiences with Anne. Uh, he, you know, he talks a little bit about how, oh, you know, he's um, he spends a lot of time just like playing um playing poker online you know on the internet at home alone right and and there's you know there's definitely like there's nothing wrong with that like um and i think that johan for the most part is actually presented as being fairly comfortable in his solitude you know he's not a man who is um really like plagued by by loneliness in 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 any kind of debilitating way or anything like that um but i i think that yeah i i, I just get the feeling that he knows that he has something valuable to offer and by being just a presence there for her how important a, a presence just another human presence can be in our lives at times and ultimately like what's more important than that you know than be, than than connecting with another person than offering them you know some something real of yourself that they might need in that moment Absolutely. And I think Johan says himself that he doesn't have a lot of friends, that his brother actually lives uh, pretty far away. And I also put in my notes how that made me think about, um, just like you, how hard it can be to make friends as an adult, that it's it's yeah. just incredibly difficult. It's something that I've, I've struggled with my entire life to make friends, to like have those connections with people. It is a very mysterious thing. And it's, I, I don't know, like, it's just hard. And, it, yeah. you know, it's not like it was easy in the past before the internet and social media, but it does, it just feels hard no matter what like even in the past and now and, and yeah and 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 the fact that you know again as the film kind of highlights you know the fact that that for a lot of people you know we may meet we may just not have any interest in connecting with them or, or or knowing them better like it just may be one of those things where like yeah you know like this is not we don't click you know we just don't click this is not yeah we're neither of us are going to get anything out of this so the rarity of finding someone with whom, oh, you actually do feel comfortable. I, um, for whatever reason, when Johan, you know, was talking about, you know, the difficulty of finding new new connections, new friends as an adult, I was reminded of, I know both both you and I have read the book, The Lonely City, and uh, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a section in there on uh, David Wanarovich and one of the one of the quotes you know and I'm paraphrasing here I know I'm not going to get it quite right but one of the quotes from uh, David Wanarovich in one of his you know diaries is you know it's something like David so he's writing about himself in like the third person but he's, he writes something like David craves human interaction but can't stand to be around people how the <laughs> hell do you solve that and yeah. 
you know, and I mean, I, I like I really relate to that in the okay. in that oh, there's so many people who I just find you know I'm not going to say that I can't stand them or or that I, I I hate being around them, but but there's you know a lot of people who it's it's draining on my batteries to be around, right? And I I can only take so much of it, and then I need to go and maybe you know get some alone time to kind of recharge my batteries. And when you find someone who is actually kind of rejuvenating to be around or who doesn't kind of just doesn't feel like a drain on you in that way, it's really, it can be something quite rare and quite special. Yeah, it's definitely hard to find. I think the film also shows us that kind of connection and intimacy does require a certain level of vulnerability. That it requires you, like if you're with someone who doesn't want to talk about themselves, doesn't want to talk about their life, doesn't want to open up or share, what can you work with? Yeah. But but both Johan and Anne, for me, were willing to open up to each other, even though at times she'll say things like, I think at one point she said, oh, I don't mean to pry. Yeah. But sometimes I think that's the problem nowadays. It's like, maybe we should pry. Yeah. What is wrong with prying? What's wrong with wanting to know someone and I was thinking more about that word pry and it's usually used when we use it in a sentence as like prying something open exactly and why shouldn't we want to be open or opened up by somebody or open somebody else up um you know there's just all this distance between people now and we never really get close enough or vulnerable or real or intimate and uh the last thing I want to say about it is that she will she will also apologize because women we're kind of socialized this way too too she apologizes when she shares too much information about about her life and I found myself so annoyed by that and I was like what's wrong with opening up what's wrong with her talking about her life and it's like we've been socially conditioned like oh don't pry don't don't say too much about yourself you know but then those are the very things that preclude us from actually connecting to other people yeah and of course the the truth at least in my experience is that you know when I do find a person uh, that I that I feel, you know, inclined to connect with or, or able to connect with, you know, th- there, it's 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 a pleasure to have them take an interest in one's life, in me, in my life, right? And just as I f- find it great pleasure in learning about them and their lives, you know, and where even, you know, sometimes the most like mundane fact about a person can be interesting if, if you're really interested in, in that person. And so... So yeah, I, I agree. You know, you're right. And we are, I think, an increasingly lonely and isolated uh, species. Yeah. And and that that's a serious problem. It's not just uh, something that plagues the individual, but it, it brings with it social problems as well. And yeah, I mean, I, I think we, as uh, things like the internet uh, allow us to connect in a sense more and more while also being solitary um Mm -hmm. in a sense we i think we we as a species need to really need to think about how we connect with each other moving forward in ways that are that are real and that are meaningful and, and 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 you know tangible yeah, I mean, so many studies have been coming out about technology, about how it's affecting us, how it's rewiring our brain. And I, I mean, just in this moment, I was thinking, I don't know if you could do this story with 20-somethings. Like, I think it's interesting that Anne and Johan are older, that yeah. neither of them are on their phones the whole time. You right. know, they're not, oh, let me tweet this, let me Instagram this, <laughs> and so on. Right. They, they're able to actually sit with each other without being on a phone. 
And so, uh, yeah. I mean, I know we sort of make fun of it all when they show a family, right? And all the kids are on the phones and the parents, and, and we tend to make a joke out of it, I guess. But to me, there's something profoundly wrong about a family that can't even talk to each other. And there are going to be ramifications to that. And so something also refreshing about this film was that there wasn't a lot of phones and technology. And it really was back to basics. It was like two people talking, two people walking around, looking at art in a museum. Like, like that was nice to me. That was refreshing, that kind of connection absolutely i mean it's it's it is refreshing and it is i think that's part of why the film is rejuvenating to me is that it it depicts a real connection you know in a way that feels so honest and so un unadorned you know so you know it just observes the connection um, as something you know meaningful in and of itself, and it's like it's, you know it works almost as like a, a reminder, you know, uh, in a way of, of how necessary that is in our in our lives, or how important it it can be in our lives. Yeah, I agree. Like, I mean, I I even still feel like a curmudgeon for like criticizing social media, but it's like. I don't know. I think we need to be more critical. I think people at first were like, oh, Facebook's great and Twitter's great because that was before these platforms became so massive and powerful. That was before the election in 2016. That was back when your mom was just connecting to people from high school and it did seem really sweet and fun. Yeah. But we were uncritical then and it's like, look what happened. Look what is continuing to happen. Yeah, there's definitely ramifications that, you know, both, again, uh, in terms of how it impacts us individually, you know, our, our brains, our the ways that we can or cannot connect with other people, the ways we can or cannot be in the moment with other people. But and then, of course, by extension, the, 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 the larger impact, the political, you know, impact yeah. and so on. Yeah. And also how social media changes how we are looking at things like looking like, you know, you're looking at your device now and we're like inundated with images now. It's so interesting to see the museum setting. Like, I don't know, this just came off the top of my head. Like, you know, you're you're viewing things in a different way. I don't know if you've ever seen John Berger's uh, Ways of Seeing. Sure, sure. Yes. And that's what he's talking about is how art trains us to see and, you know, things like that. Yeah. I mean, I saw it a while back and. But the internet has really, I think about this a lot, actually, the way we've become so visual. But are we really looking? Are we really seeing? I mean, we're just going through these images. You know, they're on our timeline on Twitter. They're on our timeline in Pinterest. We're seeing images constantly. But are we really looking at them? Yeah. Like, you know, to think, I'm thinking about how, I mean, what percentage of people when they go to to that museum or, you know, a museum like it where mm-hmm. there might be famous works of art or, you know, great works of art, you know, how often does a person, uh, you know, maybe just like snap a, a photo mm-hmm. of it with their phones and put it up on Instagram, yeah. you know, rather than actually just being in the moment and really, you know, really taking the time to just be there with the work and like take it in you know like i think the film actually shows that it shows people in the museum with their cell phones out like i I remember a few scenes people taking pictures sure and then when you mentioned that bruegel scene 
there's a man that's like he doesn't like what the guide is saying you know he's pushing back against her at times yeah i guess he doesn't like the idea that the biblical stories are not centered that's something that seems to bother him and at one time he brings his phone out he's like checking his phone that's true you're right you're right yeah I, i actually think that that exchange is pretty important um to the film as a whole so i'd love yeah, to so, hear i'd love to hear more of your thoughts about it sure so yeah there's um we basically join this group we we basically like accompany this group as they go through the the collection of bruegels and we we hear um a lot of what this uh this guest lecturer is is sharing with the group about Bruegel's life, about what makes his work important and significant, and yeah, you know, and and she she highlights the the ordinary details in Bruegel's work, the way that he did not sanitize life, you know, uh, and I, I I guess I feel like to me that man, uh, so the man has a few exchanges with her where you know, so for instance, at one point they go to a painting and the woman asks. You know, well, uh, what would you say is the is the center of this painting? And the man says, uh, you know, well, I've seen the title of the of the painting. It's the conversion of Saint Paul. So, so you know, basically, therefore, you know, obviously, Saint Paul is like the center of the painting. And she pushes back against him. She's like, well, is he though, really? <laughs> um, you know, in her mind, she makes the argument that you know this young boy who's kind of humorously got this um helmet that's kind of covers it's like too big for his head and it like covers his eyes and stuff she argues that like visually you know he's the center of the painting and and elsewhere too you know there there's a a a painting with christ in it but christ is not really in her mind like this the center either like there's all these people around many of whom don't even yeah, she says, like, spare a glance for the the Christ. And uh, so I, I guess what I find so kind of important about that, the way that I feel like he kind of represents a very conventional way of looking at and thinking about art, right? Yeah. Oh, you know, the title says this, therefore that's what's important. Oh, you know, it's a Bible image. Uh, Jesus is like the the person, the figure in this image that we should be caring about, focusing on. And really, that's what really matters. And what I think Bruegel's work is saying, or at least what the film thinks and what the lecturer thinks Bruegel's work is saying, is, you know, the lives of the ordinary, quote unquote, again, for lack of a better term, the ordinary people in these in these paintings around the 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 figure, be it St. Paul or uh, or Jesus or, you know, whoever is maybe ostensibly the important, the quote-unquote important person that they are just as important if not more important in some way and i i think that the film is you know by again by focusing on people like johan and Anne, it is it is sort of firmly taking a stance in favor of the meaning of the lives of people who usually are not going to be you know the the at the center of the frame Right, but are going to be around the, around it, but are living are still nonetheless living their own lives that are just as important to them as you know as anyone else's life is. 
And it was really probably radical in Bruegel's time to do that, to center right. the ordinary. And then I think it's also radical of Jim Cohen to center Anne and Johan, to center these very ordinary, maybe inarticulate at times people. They don't sit around and say really philosophically deep things, but they have um, a sincerity and a genuineness. Yes. And, and there was also another resonance to me about the Bruegel scene. And that was, for me, the way he depicted suffering and people's indifference to it. That when you saw the scene with Christ with the cross, this is a horrendous moment of suffering. Oh my God. This is a man carrying a cross. And most of the people in that scene, in that painting, are not even paying attention to it. Right. They right. don't care. And it reminded me, it seemed a parallel to me to Janet's situation. Mm. That here is this woman in the hospital dying. A woman who does die. And I was very emotional when that scene came. I like sobbed. I like just broke down when Johan tells Anne that it's, Janet's gone. The way that it happens, it's mm. so all he all he can say and all he has to say yep. is Anne, I'm terribly sorry. Yep. And it's just mm -hmm. it's just it says so it says everything, you know, and um, and it's yeah, such it's, this. It's such a subtle moment, and there's, I think, just this sob escapes her mouth, like she just yeah. kind of like yelps, or, or she kind of. It's very almost quiet as well. It's this subtle moment, and like she's gone, and and yeah. they had been exploring this cave, and it's like, and and life goes on. Janet's gone, or Janet was suffering, and life went on around her in Vienna. You know, yes. and it reminded me of W.H. Alden's poem, and the guide mentions it in the in ah, her speech, Musée right. Musée de Beaux and I wanted to read it. I hope that's okay because yeah, I just please. I think it I think it deeply connects to the film, to to just so much of the film, and I love that it's bringing us to this poem because this is like. Uh, this is a great poem to me personally, so I'm just going to read it. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position. How it takes place while someone else is eating, or opening a window, or just walking duly along. How when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who do not specially want it to happen. Skating on a pond at the edge of the wood, they never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course. Anyhow, in a corner, some untidy spot, where the dogs go on with their doggy life, and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs, disappearing into the green water, and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to, and sailed calmly on. So that's the poem, and it also reminded me of that Bruegel painting where she mentions the horse's butt. As yeah. like, and how in his poem, he talks about um, the the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. Yeah. You know, how in the poem, he's also mentioning these ordinary things that are happening 
while something horrific is happening that Icarus is dying you know Icarus is drowning and nobody notices like I don't know I just find that so moving I feel like the film was engaging with some of that on a certain level yeah it's it's yeah, I've been thinking a lot lately about the murder of uh, Khashoggi, the reporter in yeah. in Saudi Arabia. I mean the the consul. It's it yeah. was in Turkey. Oh, it was right. The Sorry. Saudi Arabian. Of course, of course. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, at the Saudi at the Saudi Arabian consulate in Turkey. And yeah, exactly. The detail. I mean, the details of what mm. was done to him are are so horrifying. At least what I think is reported, or what there's audio apparently of of what some of what was done and you know whenever i i hear about an act like that it's this strange feeling of oh my god you know was i awake on this planet going about my life in some ordinary way was i sipping a cup of coffee was i sleeping somewhat you know was i just doing something mundane while this act of uh staggering cruelty was you know was was happening (sighs) It's it's almost hard for me to wrap my head around at times how suffering happens and the world doesn't stop to to notice it. It's how I feel when Syria, when the stuff in Syria was ha- when we were seeing the bombings a lot and yes, yeah, um, just all kinds of different images on a daily basis sometimes that we see in the news of horrific acts of violence being committed. And I've always thought about that since like a very young age because I was really obsessed with the Holocaust when I was young. And I still have sort of an obsession with genocide and things like that. You just think about your life is going on while somebody else's life is being dismantled and destroyed and you know i used to think about what must it have been like to live during the second world war like knowing that that these people were being murdered you know and this was happening and what would i have done and you don't know what you would do like all of us are we're powerless in some ways you know it's yeah. uh, the things that are done by our government to other people we don't have a lot of control over it no. and um like that's always the big question what do you do with human suffering like you don't want to become numb to it but i think alden's poem is not necessarily saying that people are numb to it but that people are just going about their lives and that yes. they don't always notice it and they maybe they can't and, notice it maybe right, it's too we much we can't yeah. always we can't always notice it we have to you know to some degree we all we uh, we we have to go on with our lives. Yeah. You know, and certainly living in the times that we're living in right now, where outrage exhaustion, you know, is a real thing. Like, I don't have the emotional capability or bandwidth to, Mm -hmm. to become appalled and shocked and outraged at at every new horror, you know, that Mm -hmm. the Trump administration commits. And, you know, I mean, just for my own... uh, ability to function day to day on this planet like Mm -hmm. we just can't constantly be processing the the level of suffering that is taking place around us and i think a big powerful aspect of this film was how it it embraced all the aspects of life like there is the death of janet there is that pain there is that grief and then after that happens Johan and Anne go to a bar where there's dancing and singing and i have to say one of the most moving scenes of the film for me was at the end where Anne is just sitting there in her hotel room alone 
and she just starts to sing. Like yeah. to me, that also spoke to the power of art, whether it whether it's music, films, books, paintings, the power of art to help us go on, to help us cope, to help us survive. Like she's turning to song in that moment. And when Janet had been in the hospital, she had found refuge in the museum and in looking at the paintings. But at the end, there's just that moment where she's by herself and she's about to leave and go back to Montreal and she'll probably never see Johan again. I mean, I don't know. Right. And she's just there looking out the window and she's just singing. And that was like, oh, that really moved me. Yeah. And it's hard for me to think of a film that is more reflective in its impact, its effect on me as a viewer of the fact that art helps us cope and helps us go on than this film. So um, it's very successful. It's very successful in that regard. I know. Is there anything else that you would like to say about? I feel like we have said everything. Um, yeah. Um, no, I think our conversation has been um, wonderful. I, I just want to, I guess, touch briefly on um, on the very end of the film because yeah, absolutely. I feel like it, it really, again, drives home the point. I mean, not I don't want to say the point. I don't want to reduce this film to being something that just has like a specific mm. point but you know the the sort of final shots of the film it, it's video footage of a woman an old you know uh, from behind of what appears to be an older much you know an older woman an elderly woman kind of stooped over walking forward and she starts to kind of walk up this um this like incline and johan in voiceover is is talking about the image as you know almost essentially as if it's a painting you know he 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 says, you know, note how the incline uh, just sharp enough so that we uh, we perceive the, the woman's determination. You know, he's talking about the details in this thing that's actually happening, you know, as if the, the way one would talk about a painting that one is, uh, you know, kind of in the process of appreciating or thinking about what it what it has to say, what it has to offer. To me, it, it just kind of encapsulates this film's whole perspective that we should we should be more observant of life around us as it's happening, and and that the the, the, the most seemingly you know ordinary things have meaning and um, are worthy of recognizing and appreciating and perhaps finding some uh, some beauty in. I definitely agree. I think that's like a really beautiful summation of the film or or great way to describe it, really. Like, I think that's what it does as well. Well, it was really wonderful to talk to you about this film and to discuss it and to see it through your eyes and to hear your perspective about it and to also learn more about your relationship with cinema. I really appreciate that you chose to talk to me. Well, uh, Caitlin, is a tremendous pleasure for me as well. You know, I'm, I'm a, again, a great admirer of you and the podcast and the way that you think about and talk about film. And uh, so for me to uh, get to be here and talk with you about a film that I love so much was uh, simply a, a, a pleasure. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And it was, ju- it was such a pleasure for me as well.